Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. In 1861, the country had seemingly come adrift from its sheet anchor, the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, which no longer seemed applicable to a nation where the institution of human slavery ran so deep. Abraham Lincoln's election had triggered the secession of seven southern states and left the northern states wondering what would happen next. Ted Widmer tells the story of how Lincoln used a 13-day train trip to Washington to show himself to the country and in the process to reset the nation's moral compass. It's in the book Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington, and we'll talk with Ted Widmer tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you in August of 2020 uh, with the first show of Season 17 of Civil War Talk Radio. Who would have imagined that? Back when the first show came to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. This one does not. This one comes to you from the socially distanced uh, quarantine spot for Civil War Talk Radio headquarters on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not on ECU's campus, not speaking for ECU, but I'll tell you about ECU, not taking responsibility for them or anyone else, and likewise, my guest will speak only for himself tonight. Uh, I am certain of that. So, it is, uh, it has been two months uh, and a little more since we last talked together here on uh, Civil War Talk Radio and the number of things that have happened in the meantime, uh, it, it's it's just imp- mind-boggling to try to, to calculate. I'll share with you a few of the uh, 
the main points. I won't call them highlights because uh, in some cases they're quite the opposite. Here at East Carolina University, our administration said we are going to beat this virus. We're going to start with face-to-face classes. We're going to move the semester up to August 10. So rather than welcoming you to the first week and everybody's fresh-faced, we have been at it now for two and a half weeks, and it's been grueling. Uh, We tried face-to-face classes, uh, not all of them. I had two classes this uh, this part of the semester, one face-to-face with 12 students and then one online with 50 students. But as of Sunday at 10 a.m., we got the word from the chancellor, the experiment had failed, the number of spikes of the virus was too great, it was going up, it was going to exceed the ability to care for them or to quarantine them, and the decision was made to pivot to an all-online format, which many of us had expected. We thought we'd get a little further in maybe, but uh, it was not a surprise. Indeed, the administration expected it so much that in June, without consulting the faculty, we were changed from a semester system to a block system, meaning courses now last seven weeks instead of 14 weeks. You take half as many classes in a block, but they meet twice as often. Um, This means theoretically you teach twice as much in a day as you used to do. It runs into a lot of problems. There are only half as many weekends in a block as there are in a semester, and that's when students catch up or when they do their term paper research. Can't do that anymore. Uh, Research shows people listening to a lecture can take away three main points. Uh, So when you structure a class, you want to make three main points. When they tell you, oh, now the class is two hours and a quarter, you're supposed to hold the student's interest for that long and teach them six main points, they're not going to remember even the first three by the end of the second hour. Uh, Well, short answer is the block system was meant to get us into September and finish one block and then go online. But we didn't get there, so... We spent the summer converting our courses from semester to block, and in many cases from face-to-face to to online or preparing a pivot to online, Uh, and the summer was shortened. So essentially, we, we, although we're not paid to work in the summer, many people don't recognize that about teachers or professors, it's not like they get summers off, they they get summer unemployment. we got to work all summer prepping for this remarkable new season, and then uh, the block system has failed, and the face-to-face courses have failed. But we are forging ahead uh, with true pirate spirit. We will get the students educated as best we can and move forward. Uh, the And yet that pales compared to uh, the sad news to share that uh, my colleague and friend uh, across the hall from me, person I've taught next to for 17 years, uh, finally retired in the spring after a, a absolutely uh, wonderful career of teaching. He was the most beloved professor, I think, of all of us in the department. He was not the easiest. Uh, he, was, he was noted for how hard he was on student writing. He finally entered a well-earned retirement. We couldn't have a party for him because of the virus. And in a home accident, he suffered a fatal fall in July uh, and and has been taken from us just that suddenly. Uh, His name is Wade Dudley. He's a historian, uh, a great teacher, 
his he wrote about many topics. He was a fixed term professor, meaning he was hired only to teach, not to write. And yet, on his own time, uh, although he was not paid for it, he did write. He published Splintering the Wooden Wall, the British Blockade of the United States, 1812 to 1815. Uh, he published other articles and, and popular history books. He was also interested in history games, and he and I would talk about that regularly. And he was our faculty advisor for Phi Alpha Theta, the history uh, honors fraternity, uh, uh, and helped the Phi Alpha Theta students become the best chapter in the country. And that's not an exaggeration. They won that title in competitions where the students gave papers and so on. So we have started a scholarship uh, for ECU students in the name of Wade Dudley. And uh, any donations that you care to make this uh, coming season to Civil War Talk Radio uh, and you can do that at the website, www.impedimentsofwar.org. Go there, uh, make a contribution. Normally, I joke about using it to buy whatever I want, uh, but anything uh, contributed in the season ahead, I will uh, pass on to the Wade Dudley Scholarship Fund. So if you want to do a small bit to help ECU students in this very difficult semester for them, and it's harder on them than it is on the faculty, uh, that's one way you can help. So, uh, well, here we are, season 17, and I'm starting with all these uh, uh, sad notes. Uh, on the upside, the Abraham Lincoln Association and the Abraham Lincoln Institute uh, jointly award the annual Hay Nicolay Prize to the best Lincoln-related dissertation. If you out there are writing a dissertation, then turn off your computer and get back to work. That's what your advisor would tell you. But if you know of somebody who's written a dissertation or is writing one related to Abraham Lincoln in any way, submit it to the ALA and see if you can win the Hay Nicolay Prize. I've been on that jury myself in the past, and uh, some really good writing passes through there. We have a great season of shows lined up, really interesting guests week after week ahead. Uh, I say that modestly. It's to their credit, not mine. And I'm looking forward to talking with them starting tonight. But go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, and you can find out who's going to be on the show in the weeks ahead. Uh, I shouldn't uh, keep it a secret. Uh, next week, uh, Bill Barney, William L. Barney, uh, has written Rebels in the Making, The Secession Crisis, and The Birth of the Confederacy. We'll have Sharon McDonald the week after. She's a co-author of Carrying the Colors, The Life and Legacy of Medal of Honor recipient Andrew Jackson Smith. On the 16th, young historian Niels Eichhorn and uh, his book Liberty and Slavery, European Separatists, Southern Secession, and the American Civil War. And on the 23rd, Mark Dunkelman, uh, old friend of the show, comes back to talk about Amos Humiston, the famous uh, soldier at Gettysburg who... Uh, was identified only by the photo he held uh, as he died. There won't be any show on November, I'm sorry, on September 30th. That's the end of block one. Final exams already in September. It's just not natural. Uh, but we'll be back October 7th with uh, one of my favorite guests always, every time he's on, Gary Gallagher. You've all read something by him. And he has a brand new book, 
not even out yet, but it'll be out by then, called The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis. So lots of good stuff. Go to the website, go to the Facebook page, see what's happening. Uh, But tonight we start out with a book that had been sent to me by the publisher, as so many books are, but then I started getting emails from uh, from you, from listeners who had read the book and said, you must have this uh, author on the show, and he was gracious enough to appear. Uh, Ted Widmer is his name. The book is called Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. Uh, Ted, are you there? I'm here, Jerry. Yep. Can't wait to Welcome. talk about it. Well, welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, with the first show of the, the season, you got a full blast of uh, announcements yeah. and news, good and bad. Uh, yeah, but I'm glad sorry, to be but here. Lost. Thank you. It, it was it it just it was so unfair. Uh, Wade was was such a good yeah. guy and worked so hard for so many years, and uh, my heart goes out to his wife Sue and his, his the rest of his family. To be denied those years of retirement that, that he had earned is just seems seems bad. And I've lost my my game opponent. We would we would talk history and play history mm. games. And, um, it's just just really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's move on though to to speaking of unfortunate events. I always start books reading the acknowledgments first. First, I have to make sure my own name <laughs> is in there if it's somebody I know. Uh, <laughs> And then after that, if if it if not, I'm curious to see. Uh, well, who do I know in the Lincoln community that that there's who do we know in common, or uh, what what's this person's story? Your story starts with September 11, 2001, uh, and, and that was certainly eye catching. Yeah. How, how does that event relate well, to Abraham Lincoln's train? Inter- you're the first interviewer to mention that, in fact. But And I, I hesitated to put a long story into my acknowledgments, but it, it did feel related. I, I, I got so into this journey, you know. I spent many years of my life researching Lincoln on his journey, and I, I wondered where it had all come from. And I think we don't always know why we choose a topic, and sometimes it's almost like a topic chooses us. But I, I was near the end, and I remembered this uh, incredible day in my life where I boarded an airplane at 8 in the morning on September 11, 2001, and I, I was flying cross-country in exactly the pattern of all the planes that day that, that got diverted. And um, my plane was fine, but we, we were halfway across the country or not even when we started going uh, descending extremely quickly in in a way that was obviously not right and the captain came on and said there had been a terrorist threat and we'd been ordered to the nearest airport and we we didn't know if the threat was to our plane or not and we landed in Champlain Urbana, Illinois and um, it was just total pandemonium and we were simultaneously finding out about the the real threat in, in New York and Pennsylvania and Washington, but then um, just, you know, a lot of craziness trying to get a car and get to where I, I didn't know where I was supposed to go. I was trying to get to Seattle that morning, and I wondered, can I still make my meeting if I get in a car from Illinois? You know, I had no idea at all 
where I was. And I ended up going back to Philadelphia where the flight started. And I just drove all, all day through um, Illinois and Indiana and Ohio, Pennsylvania. And it was a, a day that was upsetting. But as I tried to say in the acknowledgments, it was also affirming because I I went to a lot of small towns. I, I got off the highway just because, you know, everything was so so hard that day and I drove through all these little towns and I was sort of going through Lincoln territory, Southern Indiana. And, um, it was encouraging. You know, I saw a lot of courthouses and historic monuments and places where people gather to talk to each other. And I felt like democracy was strong in spite of the attack. And, as I was finishing the book, I thought that day had actually been somewhat formative upon me. But I didn't know I would do a Lincoln book that day, but it, it made me receptive to the story when I, I came across it years later. After reading the book, I completely see how how that fits. I, I lived in Indiana many years, lived in Chicago for a while, grew up in Michigan, and I have driven... Uh, to speak to groups, uh, Civil War roundtables across Indiana and Illinois many times. And, and I know just where you were that day and yep. uh, and just how that is. We're going to take a short break and then come back and talk uh, in detail about this book. It is called Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. The author is Ted Widmer. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are 
listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Ted Widmer. He's the author of Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. Uh, Ted, you mentioned you weren't writing this, didn't know you'd be writing a Lincoln book you know, 20 years ago. Um, I should ask, what, what is your day job if you, when you're not writing about Lincoln? What, what are you doing? I'm a teacher at the City University of New York. I'm um, Distinguished lecturer at the Macaulay Honors College, which is a small honors college within a huge urban university, uh, CUNY, we call it. And um, I don't teach the Civil War there, or haven't yet. I might in the future. I, I teach a lot of different kinds of courses in history and um, current events. I guess we'd call it politics, current events. Um, but I've been a Civil War historian in in a way for a long time. I um, When I went to grad school, I wrote a dissertation. It was about New York City writers in the middle of the 19th century in the 1840s and 50s, and they were, they were getting ready for a civil war. They didn't know what was coming, but they knew something was coming. And I wrote a biography of Martin Van Buren in a series uh, about presidents that Arthur Schlesinger was uh, edited. Mm-hmm. So I've always been in the middle of the 19th century. I love that period. And in 2010 and 2011, the New York Times started publishing a lot of articles online about the Civil War as part of a project called Disunion. And I was very involved in the in the launch of that. I was one of the writers, not, not the only one, but there were a few of us mm-hmm. at the beginning who were writing pretty often, and I, I was one of them. And I later edited a book of those essays, and I just, you know, loved that period. I loved the 1840s and 50s and, and 60s, and I always loved Lincoln. He's so intimidating, you know, not just how famous he is, but he's intimidating for a lot of reasons. And I wasn't sure I had it in me to write a Lincoln book, but in, in the course of writing for Disunion, I got on this topic of the train ride, and it's a very human Lincoln who's on that train. He's a, he's a human being just trying to make it. He's just trying to get to where he's supposed to be. And there are a lot of enemies out there trying to kill him. There are a lot of friends, and they're sometimes as bad as the enemies. And he's just trying to survive each hour of every day for 13 days to get to Washington. And I thought, this is really a great story. It's a, it's a great way to see Lincoln, not quite on um, the Mount Rushmore, Lincoln frozen in stone, but a guy who's figuring things out and, and moving through the country. And I still think it was, a, I, you know, I'm not sure my book was great, but I, I am sure that it was a great topic. I, I stumbled onto a great topic, and that's half the game, you know, as historians... We don't know it, it, it's going to be a great topic until we start it, and this this one I really think it was. I, I have to agree with that. It, I mean, others have have certainly touched on it before, but I I found the book uh, 
a, a reading it was a moving experience in in both senses of the word i found it mm-hmm. uh, you know em- emotionally and intellectually moving yeah. but also there's such a sense of movement uh, throughout as you you go in a narrative fashion chronologically from springfield ultimately to washington uh, but place by place the reader really feels like he or she is on the train uh, we're looking out the windows we see what lincoln is seeing we hear what people are talking about. We experience the the frequent stops. Uh, now, I, 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 I was amazed. Amazed is not the right word. I was just surprised to realize how much I, in the course of my life, have been to most of the places along this trip. I've never mm-hmm. set out to drive the Lincoln train journey, but it was so familiar. Your descriptions just brought the experience of driving. Uh, across Ohio and across southern Indiana and across yeah. New York, uh, it, it 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 was very impressive. Uh, I'm I'm gushing well, about your book and not asking you questions. Uh, let me <laughs> ask this one. You mentioned uh, you you've taught current events, and one of the things that makes this book so uh, intriguing, at least I thought, was that it resonates with contemporary events. You refer to the telegraph as the lightning uh, as people called right. it then some but is 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 that the, the the comparison between that effect of the telegraph in the 1850s and 60s to the effect of the internet and social media today uh, certainly came to this reader's mind was that intentional i would say semi intentional um, i mean I'm, I'm glad you picked that up and it it also fits with the divided moment of 2020, uh, um, talking about how divided the country was in 18, in late 1860, early 1861, and in uncanny ways, it mirrors our current situation, although I did not anticipate any of that. I started this in 2011, you know, I had no idea we'd be where we are. Um, but I, I was alert to ways in which um, I could feel the present in in the past. I mean, you have to be careful about that because the past has its own integrity. But I, I was interested in the fact that Lincoln is emerging very quickly in a landscape that has um, information speeding up really fast, just like it is now and has has since we we had the internet in the 1990s. Um, and also, it's an, a landscape with new kinds of energy coming in very quickly. So I have a chapter about Pittsburgh, talks about oil and coal as these um, incredibly powerful new, new technologies for heating and lighting and uh, driving power for machines and all the things that Americans need and it's a technology that favors the North a whole lot more than the South and Pennsylvania, especially this one state has, has enormous coal reserves and petroleum. Um, so I'm trying to sort of subtly tease out all the ways America is, is pretty modern in 1860 and 61, but it's a, um, it's a modernity that is, is more welcome in one half of the country than in the other. And, on top of the slavery dispute, which we all know about, 
there were just a lot of other ways in which the North wanted modern America to happen, and the South didn't. So it wasn't only slavery, but it was systems of information, telegraphs and um, newspapers and printing houses, and um, just um, trains, tra- you know, transportation, trains. Uh, the South has trains and some long stretches of trains, but they're, they're not nearly as good as northern trains or trains in the upper Midwest where trains are everything. You know, trains are, are transforming every single town that they touch, and they're bringing information with them, and they're bringing immigrants with them, and they're bringing new ideas about how to build a town, like um, a brand-new town with immigrants just off the train. We'll want schools, and we'll want a school committee, and we'll want a mayor, and it's just like there, there's a way that democracy is happening in the upper Midwest that is not welcome in the South. It's just different. And so I tried to capture how how many things were up in the air in 1860 and 61, not just a new president and fears over slavery and, and how he would change the laws, but, but really how America functioned was, was up for grabs. Well, that that really does come through. That, that each chapter uh, focuses on one of the major cities that Lincoln approaches, uh, and as you say, with Pittsburgh, you talk about uh, energy and the oil of Pennsylvania, and Cleveland, you talk about Rockefeller and his transformation, not just of the the uh, energy business, oil business, but the whole nature of business itself, corporations, right, and how they operate, uh, and so on. So we really do get a sense reading this book that the United States is at this very dynamic moment when things are changing and becoming much more visibly modern everywhere that Lincoln is going. And you sense that Lincoln is, is comfortable with this and the people he is, who come out to see him, and there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who you know come out to see him at every stop and along the tracks, they, they are welcoming uh, or at least not actively resisting. You do an interesting job paralleling Jefferson Davis's train uh, voyage from his plantation near Vicksburg to Montgomery for his inaugural. Uh, he also has a train odyssey. Uh, right. But they're quite different, aren't they? They are. That that was a an idea that came to me halfway through this. And something you mentioned earlier about looking out the window, that came later, too. At first, it was all Lincoln, but then... One of my students said, what's he seeing? Well, you know, everyone's looking at him, but what's he seeing out the window? And I, I, that was a great question to ask. So I, I began to try to describe what all these cities look like. Um, but Jefferson Davis is absolutely on a train. It's, it's uncanny. They're, they're racing toward their inaugurations. Um, in some ways, Lincoln has an advantage. The southern rail system is so backwards that he has to go around three quarters of a rectangle wrong way to to get there. But he does get there before Lincoln and he's inaugurated on February 18th and Lincoln isn't until March 4th. Um, But Davis's journey, I mean, he he gives speeches, but they're not the same. They're not, um, they're not 
moments of human interaction, especially he's a you know rather imperious figure explaining all the things he's about to do as a new chief executive. And Lincoln's really kind of interacting with his audiences, responding to things that they say. He's, he's good in the moment. He's funny. And he says the right thing over and over again. He's building up an audience, which he, he needs to do because he's won with a very low popular vote. He's less than 40%. So it's a kind of um, campaign trip after winning. You, you know, every other campaign trip is before the election. And this is a campaign trip after the election. And he's just trying to um, figure out who the people are that he's been elected to to lead, and he has a couple of bad moments, and you know that that's attractive to me. This guy is not perfect, but over the course of the trip, he's getting better and better and better. And by the end, he's giving speeches that are at a very high level and showing strong signs of of the mastery to come. I mean, of Gettysburg in particular. Now, the you mentioned something earlier that really was the $64 question I was going to ask, and I'll I'll ask it in this form. You said you started this in, in 2011, so that's well before the current moment. But throughout this book, there's a real sense of the fragility of the republic, that yes. uh, the, the secession has taken place already, that, that states have already begun to secede uh, before Lincoln starts this journey. So the country is literally falling apart. It's not at all right. clear that his election will be recognized. The Electoral College has not uh, delivered the, the votes to the, the Congress. And you, know, you, you point out something could happen to the box full of votes. Who knows? Uh, right. Now, that might have seemed, when you started writing this, people might think, oh, yeah, like in 2000. But now we are at a point where... In contrast to Lincoln in 1864, who said we could never postpone an election, uh, that would that would let our enemies, you know, have won the the war to to show that we can't conduct an election in wartime. Uh, no chief executive has ever suggested that our republic is not strong enough to conduct an election, even in the midst of the Civil War. Lincoln said no, uh, and now in 2020, the chief executive has said out loud, maybe we should postpone the election. To the credit of right. both parties, everyone else has said, no, of course not. We, we're better right. than that. But the f- sense of fragility is with us. No no previous election has been challenged in its legitimacy, even before it happened, by anyone of importance. And this one is being challenged by the chief executive before it happens. Right. It, 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 listeners may be listening to this in t- 2021 and laughing at how ignorant and helpless we are as you and I have this conversation today in August 2020, but the Republic feels fragile at this moment. And it, and it felt that way in your book. Yes. I mean, it, it was uncanny to me how the history research I was doing began to feel more and more like the country I was living in, in, in the 20 teens. And then in 2020, when, when the book came out and, you know, I, I really did not anticipate that, but um, the South secedes because they don't like the result of an election. They they don't secede because of a military threat. They secede mm-hmm. because they just 
their candidate didn't win. You know, so that that's a sign of a pretty fragile country right there. If half the country quits because they didn't, their candidate didn't win. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I wanted to say that more forcefully, and then I wanted to say how hard the situation was for Lincoln, who's untested in every way. He's not a well-known politician. You know, barely won the. He 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 did get the nomination, but he didn't wasn't expected to get it. And he did win the election, but with a minority of the popular vote, and. Then with half the country missing, it's just very unclear what he's going to do as president. It's even unclear. And this, this was part of the research I really enjoyed. It's unclear that the capital, Washington, will still be in the United States by the time he arrives there because it too was up for grabs like everything. And there were Southern militias walking around with guns, making noises like they wanted Washington to be the capital of the Confederacy, which it could have been. Um, in in a lot of ways, Washington was the capital of both countries, both the future Confederacy and and the future Lincoln-led United States of America. Um, so yes, the point about extremely. about the militia. Let me step in quickly. The point about sure. the militia brings up uh, the danger from armed resistance. And one of the currents underneath the whole trip is the threat of assassination. We're going to take another break and come back on that topic when we return in just a moment, talking more with Ted Widmer, author of Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Every Saturday morning, listen for the Superstar Sports Talk Block on Voice America Variety. We've got the best programs. If you want to talk football, hunting, outdoors, racing, and more, the weekends belong to sports. And you'll find it every Saturday beginning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time. You'll hear from the players, owners, experts, and fans from around the world. It's the Saturday Superstar Sports Talk Block. Wow, that's a mouthful. And it's only on the Voice America Variety channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. 
That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Ted Widmer, author of Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. Before we get back to the book, I've been handed a note to remind you that if you want to see what I look like as well as hear me, why would you want that? Uh, I will be appearing on History Happy Hour this Sunday at the website of the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours uh, folks where I'll be talking Lincoln history with uh, Rick Beyer and Chris Anderson, two historians there. If you go to the Impediments of War website, kept up by Mark Gaffney, you can find a link to that. That'll be on August, uh, what is it, 31st, 31st, Sunday, August 31, 2020, 4 o'clock, and you can check the link uh, at the website and watch it live then or watch it some other time. So tonight we're talking, though, with Ted Widmer about this absolutely fascinating book, Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. And as Lincoln is traveling by train from Springfield to D.C. to be inaugurated, since that won't take place until March, he's got three months to kill in the meantime, uh, in Springfield, now he's on his way, the fear that someone will try to stop him uh, is on every page of this book. Uh, there, there's, there's that underlying fear that someone's going to try to assassinate uh, Lincoln, and your set, historians have, have wondered, and, and at the time people wondered, were the warnings of Alan Pinkerton just the same kind of warnings Pinkerton gave McClellan, full of hot air, or was there really something there? Was there really, do you think, an assassination plot to stop Lincoln going through Baltimore? I, I do. I mean, you're, you're, you're right to ask. Pinkerton is a complicated guy, but mm-hmm. he's writing these things down uh, in real time. He, he told this story many times in his life, but he also kept a, a kind of notebook as it was all happening and writing it down. And it's hard to believe he was just fabricating it. And there's a lot of other evidence that Baltimore is just seething with anger, and and we we know they attacked the Massachusetts troops on the way in in a very violent episode uh, in in April, mm-hmm. and so it it does feel persuasive to me. And there, you know, there's just a lot of there are a lot of other witnesses to the anger in in Baltimore. He, he gets a lot of letters from Baltimore. Lincoln does uh, during. December and January saying, don't come through here. They'll kill you. And those are just well-meaning citizens writing letters into him. And there are people around Washington who are commenting in their letters to each other about how ugly it is in both Washington and Baltimore. So, yeah, I I believe it. And and then the two very important sources for this book are, um, well, well, one source, but it's about two people. Samuel Felton is not a household name, but he's the president of the railroad mm-hmm. from Philadelphia through Baltimore to Washington. And he later told this, and, you know, he's just a very respectable guy. He's a civic leader of Philadelphia and runs an important railroad. He's not an emotional guy. And he later said, um, 
this was an extremely close call, and the only reason I knew about it was this woman, Dorothea Dix, came to see me in my office in, in the beginning of, 20, of, of 1861 and laid out the plot in great detail for me, so I was able to take precautions. And so I believe Samuel Felton, and I also... The more I read about Dorothea Dick, she was an incredible woman who did not call attention to herself. She was a, an advocate for mental health and was mm-hmm. well-liked in southern states as well as northern states. And while in the South, she heard about this assassination plot. So she quietly went to see Felton, who hired Pinkerton. And I just don't think Felton would have made it up. Well, I, I found myself convinced... Um, and, it wasn't so much I was convinced there must have really been a plot, but after reading this, I felt comfortable that Lincoln made a well-founded decision. The Based on the evidence that you show that was in front of Lincoln at the time, the decision was not one that was made hastily or on scanty right. evidence, and it would have been irresponsible to make any other decision, is, is the impression right. I came away with. Uh, right, but again, you, you do such an interesting job putting us in Lincoln's train car uh, with the people talking to him. Now, you also make the point that Lincoln was uh, Lincoln was fortunate to have gotten away without being assassinated, but he was also fortunate not to have been killed by his friends. And and you mentioned yeah. that a little earlier tonight. Talk talk about one of his close calls. Well, so. The train ride is, um, it's almost a train out of control. You know, there, there is no national system. It's all local railroads. And so they're doing the best they can getting in from one state to the next state. It's very exciting that Abraham Lincoln is coming to a town. He's the president-elect and, and everyone knows he's connected to the, the, the big thing that is coming. They don't know yet that it's the Civil War, but they just know something big is coming. And so huge crowds come out to see him. And these small towns and cities, they don't really know how to welcome a celebrity. So they they put out some food, but often the crowds eat up all the food before Lincoln can get near it. Um, they fire guns in, in tribute to Lincoln's arrival, but these aren't well-organized army units. They're just like local militias. Again, you know, just like there are northern militias and there are southern militias. And these are just young men walking around with guns who don't quite know what they're doing. And there's artillery, too. And in a couple places, artillery blasts are fired, well, either so near to the train that the windows shatter or once in upstate New York actually into the train that Lincoln's riding on. It's incredible. You know, the train is nearly wiped out by sympathetic people welcome, welcoming him. So and, America isn't really that well organized for war. It's a large country and a powerful and a rich country, but it isn't really a country ready to fight a war. Probably even more true in the North than in, in the South. So Lincoln's train trip is pulling out all of these ways in which um, the country's not, not yet ready for the Civil War. Another thread that appears in chapter after chapter is the thread of continuity to the present. Uh, You mentioned how many uh, former and especially how many future presidents see Lincoln on this journey. Yeah. 
and if not future presidents, often the ancestors of future presidents. Right. Yeah. How, right. Did, did you make a point to track them all down? I did. I mean, I would just study every locality very carefully, and and, and that was a joy. I got to say, Lincoln was a joy too because he's so endlessly interesting. And the train was a joy. Um, you know, not too many interviewers have asked me about that, but it's really about a book about trains as well as about Lincoln. Um, but then, yeah, I just studied every small town so carefully that he went through. And I often found, like, in a place like Buffalo, Grover, Cleveland is living there. So I, I got mm-hmm. interested in what exactly he was doing. And then in all, you know... There are a lot of future presidents in upstate New York, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in uh, Ohio, and mm-hmm. so I was happy to trace all of them. And Benjamin Harrison is in Indiana. Martin Van Buren is still alive in upstate New York, and um, there are some infants. Uh, William Howard Taft is a, a baby, basically in Cincinnati. Theodore Roosevelt doesn't see him on the train in, but he's. Um, famously captured in a window, looking out the window at Lincoln's funeral train in 1865 in New York City. So so they're all over the place. And Lincoln's intuition was right, that if he just took this train through the big cities of the Midwest and the North, he'd see a lot of America. And it, you know, while doing that, he saw a lot of American presidents. And, and you know, the train goes through Hyde Park, New York, so you go through Roosevelt Territory, yep. and uh, yep. you mentioned that the I guess grandfather and great grandfather of both presidents Bush uh, sees them at some point. Uh, so just one one connection after another with the 20th century, uh, even into the 21st century, uh, sort of works to to balance the, the the sense that the republic is in danger with the sense that the republic has a long. Uh, Thread of continuity running through it, and that. Yeah. Now, yes. you mentioned the funeral train, and we're almost out of time, but I do want to bring that up. You, in the epilogue, you you bring the story full circle. Uh, was that in the the book plan from the start to to finish up with the description of the a much shorter description of the funeral train? I. Yes and no. I I knew somehow that I had to deal with it because it's this eerie parallel train that brings Lincoln's body back on almost the exact same route. It's slightly different, but very, very similar. And in many cases, he would come into a town and the same horsemen and horses would carry his body that had carried him four years earlier, alive, coming through the same city. So it is eerie. And I wanted to bring him back, but 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 faster, not in the same amount of detail as, as on the train going in. Um, but all these extra details came out that I didn't know would be in there when I did the proposal. Um, I added a, a section that I loved, but it was you know a little bit off topic and, and kind of strange in some ways, but I loved it anyway. It was about Lincoln continuing to to travel as president as if he's on a quest and in the final weeks of the war, he goes to city point, Virginia, and then into Richmond the day after it's fallen. And there are these um, incredible scenes of Lincoln walking through a city that was 
capital of the Confederacy only a couple days earlier, and snipers in windows maybe pointing their guns at him. You know, it's a little unclear. But um, walking among African Americans who, not entirely clear what their legal status was, but basically had just been freed, and <laughs> gathering around him and him giving a spontaneous, beautiful speech to them. And I wanted to add that into the story of this man journeying geographically, like he's sort of moving, as you said, toward a culmination of a story, and then the war ends, and as we all know, he's killed almost immediately afterwards. And so I told the sad story of him going back to Springfield, but I tried within that story to plant the seeds of new life to talk about the young people who saw the the coffin going through or who saw their parents ravaged with grief and took inspiration to lead lives of great purpose. People like um, Ida Tarbell or Jane Addams, the, the, mm-hmm. the friend of the poor in Chicago and um, or Augusta St. Gaudens, the sculptor who does that Beautiful. I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm right next to a copy of that statue. I'm, I'm ah. parked in Cambridge, mm-hmm. Massachusetts, and um, there's a beautiful Lincoln statue. It's not very well known, but in Cambridge Common, and uh, St. Gaudens is a young man, and he goes and he, he saw Lincoln both on the way in, and then he went and saw him on the way out. He went and looked at his body in New York City and studied it to make a beautiful statue, and that's the statue in Chicago, and um, you know, there's, there are copies of it around the country. There's a copy in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But, um, he remained alive because so many well, people saw him on the way back. I will say he also remains alive because of books like this one. This really is... Uh uh, it, it is a challenge to write a new Lincoln book. There are more books about Lincoln we know than any other about any other American, uh, and it, it takes a certain amount of nerve to send in a proposal for a new Lincoln book and uh, sets a high bar to have something new to say. And this this book clears that bar. I when it was first suggested to me, I thought, do I want to read another Lincoln book? Do I need to? Uh, <laughs> And I'm really glad I did. Really enjoyed it. Uh, and, and thank you. I wish we had more time to talk about it. Unfortunately, we are out of time for tonight. Uh, but I will say, listeners, this is uh, if you're going to read a Lincoln book this year, uh, Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington by Ted Widmer, uh, is is one you will enjoy, and uh, one that that in a in a very odd, not an odd. It's one that, that gives me hope and inspiration in a, in a, at a time when that's sorely needed. So, uh, Ted, thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk thank Radio. Thank you, Jerry. Wonderful questions, and I, I'm really glad you picked up that note of hope. That's, that was important to me, so thank you for noticing that. Well, it, it, it was a pleasure. And listeners, as always, keep your masks on, flatten the curve, and thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Have a good week.